It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. Yeah, not so much, as it turns out. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. One reason. I got the feeling that something right. No, I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. Seattle's KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe for you every day. For your listening convenience, on the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of this little ditty we call the Bradcast. Uh, coming up in a bit, while we do not normally spend a lot of time on this program on polls, preferring to focus on the track conditions rather than on the horse race, I will be joined by a political pollster today with some details on uh, on his new poll, which he says identifies the one thing, the one thing that will determine Trump's fate during the critical 2020 presidential election. What is that one thing? Well, you'll just have to stay tuned to find out. <laughs> it's a punishing tease, Desi Doyen. You're welcome. That's a very clickbait headline. But there is one. Yeah, he's got it. He's got the one thing that, well, you'll just have to uh, stand by for that. <laughs> Before we get there, however, uh, speaking of uh, fate, uh, Hillary Clinton's fate in no small part back in 2016 was somewhat sealed, I would argue, by the belief by some that she was a criminal. Crooked Hillary, as Donald Trump used to call her. Lock her up, they chanted, and they still do at Trump's uh, campaign rallies. Sadly, there were enough voters who might otherwise have voted for the Democrat in 2016, but that were hoodwinked by Donald Trump and the right-wing media's unceasing campaign that she was a criminal shyster who would probably be indicted or impeached just as soon as the real story of her crimes came out. After she was elected. So they they voted for the other guy, the non-criminal Donald Trump. Hold your laughter, please. Uh, they voted for him instead uh, or they stayed home. Either way, you know, just to be safe. 
By the way, I should note that it, it wasn't just Donald Trump and the right wing media machine pushing this nonsense about Hillary Clinton's emails and all of those millions of dollars in bribes that were flowing into her Clinton Foundation. Uh, the non right wing media, most notably the New York Times played along with this. Uh, but most of the corporate media who, who played along with the con enough made a real dent, I think, in Clinton's support before the 2016 election, enough so that while uh, she solidly won the popular vote by some three million votes, there were enough folks who were scared off of her in, in enough key states to barely give the Electoral College edge to the real criminal candidate in this case. That, of course, would be Donald J. Trump. Uh, a few weeks ago, with incredibly little fanfare, the final report from the inspector general at Donald Trump's State Department determined that there was no evidence of criminal wrongdoing by Hillary Clinton or anybody else at the State Department regarding the use of emails during Clinton's service as secretary of state. No, she did not release classified information to our enemies, nor was there any violation of law in her use of a private email server for state business. Of course, if Donald Trump had actually cared about any of that above and beyond as a, a, a campaign hoax, uh, a way to get elected by playing his supporters for suckers, if he actually cared about that, then those in his administration would not have used private email servers after he came into the White House. Folks like Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon and Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. And the list goes on and on and on. A ton of others who, yes, have used private email servers and even private texting apps to conduct the public business of the White House since Donald Trump's inauguration. So the calls to lock her up over her private email were all BS, all of it. But what about that Clinton Cash, that book? Remember that book, Clinton Cash? It was uh, hyped by the New York Times. They had an exclusive preview before the book was even published, written by some guy who worked over at, yes, Breitbart before the election. What about all of those millions of dollars of bribes that she received while she was Secretary of State from foreign countries? who were using the Clinton Foundation to pay her off for any manner of things, the Clinton Foundation that was set up by her and her husband after Bill Clinton's presidency to, you know, pay her millions of dollars, for example, to approve the Russian purchase of a uranium mine in the U.S. What about all of that? Well, with Trumpers now in control of the Department of Justice, you knew the time would come when they would finally nab Hillary Clinton... And yes, lock her up for all of her dastardly deeds. But oddly enough, it does not seem to have worked out that way, does it? According to the Washington Post, their revelation on Thursday night, a Justice Department inquiry launched more than two years ago to mollify conservatives. I would say to mollify right wingers, but whatever. Conservatives clamoring for more investigations of Hillary Clinton has effectively ended with no tangible results and current and former law enforcement officials say they never expected the effort to produce much of anything. Imagine that. Donald Trump's own Justice Department was unable to find any wrongdoing to lock her up about. Who could have guessed it? 
Was this all just a campaign hoax? Was it a witch hunt, in fact? John Huber, the U.S. attorney in Utah, was tapped in November of 2017 by then Attorney General Jeff Sessions to look into concerns raised by Trump and his allies in Congress that the FBI had not fully pursued cases of possible corruption at the Clinton Foundation and during Clinton's time as Secretary of State when the U.S. government decided not to block the sale of a company called Uranium One. As a part of his review, Huber examined documents and conferred with federal law enforcement officials in Little Rock, Arkansas, who were handling a meandering probe into the Clinton Foundation. Current and former officials said that Huber has now largely finished and found, wait for it, nothing worth pursuing. The effective conclusion of his investigation, with no criminal charges or other known impacts, is likely to roil some in the GOP who had hoped the prosecutor would vindicate their long-held suspicions about a political rival. Trump, though, has largely shifted his focus to a different federal prosecutor tapped to do a separate special investigation. That would be U.S. Attorney uh, in uh, Connecticut, John Durham, who Attorney General Bill Barr assigned last year to explore the origins of the FBI's 2016 probe into possible coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia, though so far that has not yielded much more. But maybe they'll find something. Maybe they'll find something in that witch hunt hoax, Bill Barr's witch hunt hoax. Of course, that was before Donald Trump came up with his new witch hunt hoax. That would be to suggest that Joe Biden, his potential rival in the 2020 election, had also committed some vague form of criminal chicanery that might require him, Joe Biden, to be locked up. Are you starting to see a pattern here? Are you falling for it again? Or are, or are you still gullible enough to, to, to fall for this nonsense as it continues to come from the guy who actually has committed uncountable crimes that really would merit locking him up were it not for the DOJ's, his own DOJ's, ridiculous belief that a sitting president cannot be criminally indicted? After haranguing from the uh, then president, Donald Trump, on Twitter, wherein he tweeted, among other things, quote, everybody is asking why the Justice Department and FBI isn't looking into all the dishonesty going on with crooked Hillary and the Dems. Really? Is that what everybody was asking? Uh, at the time, Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, uh, then was harangued enough that he sent a letter to the uh, U.S. attorney Huber telling him to review the wide array of issues related to Clinton. That included the Clinton Foundation, the Uranium One matter, along with the FBI's handling of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server while she was secretary of state. Spokesperson for Huber referred questions to Justice Department headquarters where a spokesperson there declined to comment on any of this. Conservative lawmakers, says the Post, I would call them right wing lawmakers. There is nothing particularly conservative about using the expensive apparatus of the Department of Justice to launch a phony hoax witch hunt against political enemies. Uh, but particularly uh, then Congressman Bob Goodlatte, uh, who was chair of the House Judiciary Committee uh, and members of the uh, Freedom Caucus, they were initially encouraged that Huber was assigned uh, to this 
task, seeing it as a sign that Clinton was going to be in big new legal jeopardy now that this investigation was underway, now that Donald Trump was president. Clinton and her family, the Post notes, have been subjected to significant law enforcement and other scrutiny over the years, though the various probes have mostly delivered just reputational blows rather than any actual legal ones. When she ran against Trump in 2016, the FBI investigated her use of a private email server to determine whether she had mishandled classified information. When she was secretary of state, officials ultimately determined the case should be closed with no charges whatsoever. The State Department more recently concluded a multi-year probe of its own into the matter, but concluded there was no systemic or deliberate mishandling of classified information by employees. The Clinton Family Foundation has separately faced investigations over the years on vague corruption allegations. None have produced any charges. After Bill Barr was then confirmed as Donald Trump's attorney general early last year, the department had still said nothing publicly about the results of Huber's work, even though they had already known that there was nothing there. Barr was among the conservative voices, I would say right-wing extremist voices, Washington Post, uh, who in Washington had previously suggested there was possible criminal wrongdoing in the Uranium One matter. Republicans questioned whether there was misconduct in the U.S. government's decision to not block the 2020, uh, 2010 uh, <laughs> acquisition of that company. Uh, in which Russia's atomic energy agency Rosatom acquired a controlling stake in Uranium One, which, by the way, is a Toronto-based company. The deal meant that uh, Rosatom received rights to about 20% of the uranium extraction capacity in the U.S. by this Canadian-based company. That transaction had this tenuous connection somehow to Clinton, at best, as yes, we explained at the time, debunking this nonsense many, many years ago uh, while she was running the State Department at the time. Under obscure government rules, the deal had required approval from a multi-agency board because it involved giving a foreign government control of an American business commodity with national security implications. That board is called CFIUS, or the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., which had to approve this sale. CFIUS is composed of representatives from nine different federal agencies, including one of them being the State Department, which uh, Clinton, her, her, Clinton was the Secretary of State at the time, but she was never actually on the CFIUS board. She had nothing to do with it. Now, in some cases, CFIUS decides to intervene and block some corporate merger or acquisition if it's believed that it could be a risk to U.S. national security. The Washington Post, Post notes that conservatives, I would say dishonest Republican political operatives, questioned whether Clinton may have manipulated the CFIUS process oh to let the acquisition go forward. When she wasn't even on the, the CFIUS board, board yeah. and was only one yeah, of nine, nine other. Yeah. Yeah. Current and former officials have denied that. They said the decision was handled well below the level of secretary of state. So the phony witch hunt hoax 
contention here is this claim that someone, Russia, somehow paid off Hillary to allow the sale to go through because uh, they must have donated millions of dollars to the Clinton Foundation, which uh, you'll be shocked to learn uh, the U.S. attorney assigned by Donald Trump's own Justice Department found to be completely untrue. So as it turns out, and who could have foreseen it, there is nothing to lock her up about, according to probe after probe after probe of the Clinton Foundation, of her emails, all by Donald Trump's own corrupt investigative process. And by the way, while all of those phony witch hunt hoaxes were going on, of course, there was another multi-year investigative probe that was playing out in Donald Trump's Justice Department at the same time. That one, which some of those conservatives, I mean, completely dishonest right wing extremist Trump dupes, which those people described as a witch hunt hoax. But it was anything but. Uh, at the very same time, special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 26, uh, 2016 election, that led to 199 criminal counts against 37 people and entities. Seven people pleaded guilty, many of them top officials in the Trump campaign and in the Trump administration. Six of them have been sentenced to prison. And Mueller concluded that not only had Russia engaged in a deep and broad effort to influence the election to help Trump and to hurt Clinton, but also that Trump himself had engaged in a series of behaviors during the investigation that unlawfully obstructed that investigation. Yes, lock him up. Trump and his allies regularly dismiss the Mueller probe as a witch hunt and as a hoax. So what will they say now about this probe into Clinton's business dealings that turned up absolutely nothing? Of course, they will say nothing about it. They won't talk about it. They'll move on or they'll pretend it's still going on and they'll continue to chant lock her up at his rallies because, you know, that's what they do. Or they'll now begin to say lock him up over Joe Biden. What's abundantly clear, writes Chris Saliza at CNN, in the Justice Department's decision to close the, close the probe quietly and with no charges filed is this. Donald Trump made up a series of allegations that Clinton had abused her office as Secretary of State for personal gain. We should not be surprised by that fact, but we shouldn't just let it go without taking note of it either. Well, consider it noted. Neither, by the way, should we let go the fact that the mainstream media outlets, not just right wing ones, but yes, ones like Chris Saliza's CNN and most shamefully, the New York Times all played along with these hoaxes in the middle of this election in 2016. And in fact, they legitimized these hoaxes by running them as if they were exactly what the Trump and the right wingers were pretending that they were when they were not. We did not do so on this show. In fact, we debunked what was being claimed based on the known evidence at the time. Yes, while keeping an open mind, should any actual evidence reveal itself, that we would cover that as well, but it never did, as expected. Nonetheless, the damage was done and the damage was the point. Just caused the damage. The damage is exactly the same damage that Donald Trump is now attempting to inflict on Joe Biden. And that is at the core of why Donald Trump is now being impeached. 
And there's one other uh, point worth noting here before we move on. As detailed in a Twitter thread on Thursday night after The Washington Post broke the story, uh, Tom Watson, a Democratic strategist and a nonprofit consultant and professor, he tweeted, Thus ends a vicious attack on the American nonprofit sector by white nationalists, Putin, and his proxy in the White House. Shame. Deep, lasting, indelible shame on legitimate media that went along with the attempted takedown of the Clinton Foundation. While the Trump Foundation was corrupt to the last decimal and has been shut down, the Clinton Foundation has preserved, has persevered through the storms of disinformation, foreign interference, media complicity, and right-wing hatred. It's still doing great work today, he says. No public charity is perfect. Every single nonprofit that seeks impact and change sometimes has to change course. He says he knew the people, he knows the people who worked at the Clinton Foundation, calls them some of the finest people working on public causes in the U.S. He says it's despicable and always will be what happened to their work. He says you want to hate on a president and a secretary of state. They are tough-minded public figures. They can take it and then some. But the people who sought to improve lives through the foundation's work deserve better. The disgraceful and false stories trafficked so easily by journalists who simply did not care, who chased clicks, did Trump's bidding, all to damage the work of a committed group of true professionals, mostly young people, predominantly women, truly despicable. So now the false investigation is winding down. And what did Barr's Justice Department find? I'll tell you, meticulously maintained public records and a history of changing lives here and around the world for the better. People find their way into nonprofit work, not for money, says Tom Watson, but for the chance to help other people, to solve problems, to ease pain, to comfort the sick and rebuild communities. The coordinated smear of the Clinton Foundation was an attack on the American nonprofit sector itself. Let's hope this sad and horrific chapter yields a lesson that is well heeded in Washington in newsrooms and on the public commons. Well, there is always hope. Quick break before some good news about our next election. If Dems and media get smart enough to not fall for the same nonsense all over again, and we will be joined by a pollster to explain how that could or arguably should happen uh, with the one sure way that Trump could be removed from our national nightmares once and for all this November. All of that is straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. So this is what the truth feels like This is more of what I had in mind yep. Yeah, this is what the truth feels like You know, like. if you just always tuned into the broadcast, You know what the truth feels like Welcome back to it I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com 
Uh, yeah, this is what the truth feels like. It has been a, uh, a rough week. Over the past seven days, we've gone from the president's unlawful targeted assassination of a top Iranian leader, bringing us to the brink of World War III, to a purposely uh, muted response from the grown-ups in Iran, which offered an off-ramp of sorts for Donald Trump to take to avoid all-out war, which, for the moment anyway, he seems to be taking. At the same time as all of that, we're waiting for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to send over two articles of impeachment passed by the House of Representatives just before the end of the year uh, to send that over to the U.S. Senate, where an impeachment trial on the potential removal of the president from office is about to occur for only the third time in American history. Comments from Pelosi on Friday suggest that the transmittal of those articles could come within the next week or so, which means Mitch McConnell's planned fixed trial in the U.S. Senate could begin shortly thereafter, as early as the next few days as well. And at the same time, we'll have another Democratic presidential debate on Tuesday night. Tuesday night, Desi Doyne? Oh, boy. It's everything all at once. Uh, yeah, as uh, caucus voters in Iowa are set to gather on February third, following the New Hampshire, uh, followed by the New Hampshire primary uh, vote just one week later. Despite the fact that there remains really no clear front runner for the Democratic nomination at this time. But my guest from the public policy polling firm or PPP will join me shortly to discuss the one thing. The Democrats can do, at least according to their data, to remove Trump from office once and for all this November. With all of that as our background today uh, and the ballot box still being the surest bet for removing our national cancer from the White House, uh, here's a bit of good news that I think we all deserve uh, coming out of uh, the very crucial Swing state, battleground state, I don't even know what to call it. Uh, well, one of the most crucial states in the 2020 election, that would be North Carolina, arguably the most closely divided state in the nation. It barely went for Obama in 2008. It barely went to Romney in 2012 before it then went to Donald Trump in 2016 at the very same time that the state elected a Democratic governor on that same statewide ballot. So it's very closely divided. In North Carolina, the largest counties there are still incredibly enough planning on using those 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices or BMD systems that are proliferating the country uh, before the 2020 elections, even though they failed so badly last November in Pennsylvania and Georgia and elsewhere. And even as the brand new study that we reported on our previous broadcast, you should download it if you have not heard it. Uh, the study that found that 93% of voters do not notice when those computer touchscreen uh, voting systems flip their vote, even when they print out a paper ballot. But at least we've got this tiny bit of good news for voters out of North Carolina today. A federal judge last week formally blocked North Carolina's new voter ID law, photo ID restriction, ruling that it uh, that discriminatory intent was likely the motivating factor in how the measure was crafted. The blistering decision from U.S. District Judge Loretta Biggs will have big consequences in North Carolina, according to The Guardian. Donald Trump carried the state in 2016, uh, but the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, won at the same time by just over 10,000 votes. But this ruling by the judge is a big blow to Republicans. They had overridden a veto from Governor Cooper 
to enact the law last year. The measure came uh, two years after North Carolina's previous photo ID law was found to have targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. So what did the GOP lawmakers in the state do? They put a, uh, a measure onto the ballot in uh, 2018 to require photo ID. That measure passed. However, it had a, to have a law that accompanied it to enact it. And it was that law that was found to be discriminatory by this federal judge who said the legislature sought ways to circumvent state and federal courts in order to further entrench itself. Biggs noted, for example, that minority voters in the state were less likely to possess the uh, very few types of acceptable IDs uh, that would now be allowed under this new law. She noted that African-American voters were more likely to have public assistance and government IDs, but those were largely not considered an acceptable form of photo ID under this new law. Uh, specifically, probably, by, uh, yeah. probably on purpose. Yeah, you think? Yeah. So uh, she blocked this measure, and for now, it looks like this measure will not be enacted in 2018 for the primaries or the general elections, which should be considered to be very good news for all voters in the state of North Carolina. So there's some good news for a change today. Maybe the first good news I think we've had in days, but we <laughs> will uh, we'll take it. Yep. Uh, maybe we'll have some good news next uh, in the next segment. Maybe. If Democrats listen closely to it, we'll take a quick break and we are back with pollster Jim Williams of public policy polling on the one thing that Democrats or at least Trump opponents can do, according to new data from PPP, to assure they remove Donald Trump from office this November. That's worth staying tuned for, right? I thought so. Stay right there. I'm Brad Friedman and this is the world famous broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Yep, please do. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Elizabeth Warren is often portrayed in media as a figure of the left wing, locked in a battle with Bernie Sanders for the progressive base of the party. In fact, according to Alex Thompson at Politico, polling frequently shows that she is the second choice, not just of Bernie Sanders voters, but of the more moderate Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg supporters as well. Seeking a spark heading into the Iowa caucuses, Warren and her allies are making a surprising closing argument that she is best positioned to unite and excite the party and is therefore 
the most electable. Warren has mostly abstained from attacking other Democrats in an attempt not to alienate supporters of other candidates. Her campaign staff reflects that approach. They uh, are a mix of officials from Bernie Sanders, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton's past campaigns. Warren's campaign has long resisted publicly engaging in coverage of polls and strategy and the important but ill-defined concept of electability. The pivot, however, to an explicit horse race message that she is the best one suited to bring the party together, coming as she has dipped or plateaued in a number of polls of late, and as her fundraising has slowed in the final quarter before voting begins, is all part of a larger attempt to answer voters' concerns about beating Donald Trump. Warren's chief strategist, Joe Rossbars, during a podcast interview with strategist David Pluff, said uh, that polls show Elizabeth Warren is at the top of people's considerations set and the person that the fewest number of people would be disappointed if she is the nominee. Axelrod said the Democratic Party, however, is such a jumble right now that it's anyone's guess whether Warren's gambit to be a unity candidate will actually work. She could finish fourth in Iowa or she could finish first, he said. It's kind of a jump ball. And that much is certainly true. Less than three weeks away now from the Iowa caucuses and a month from the first in the nation New Hampshire primary, it is anybody's guess about the way that any of this could go. According to a new poll out from Monmouth University, Pete Buttigieg and Senator Bernie Sanders have seen a spike in support in New Hampshire and are now nodded with former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Elizabeth Warren at the top of the list. Monmouth's latest survey on Thursday finds Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, with a narrow lead at 20 percent in New Hampshire, followed by Biden at 19 percent, Sanders at 18 percent and Warren at 15 percent. So. Yeah, a jump ball at this point, it seems to me, one which could change quickly depending on what happens in Iowa in a few weeks, which is similarly tight among the top tier. The previous survey from September from Monmouth found Warren and Biden alone at the top in New Hampshire at 27 and 25 percent each, respectively. Warren has since lost 12 points and Biden has fallen six points while Buttigieg has gained 10 and Sanders has gained six. Making things even more confusing, California billionaire Tom Steyer, who, along with New York billionaire Mike Bloomberg, are dumping tens of millions of dollars in personal money into their own races. Well, Spire, uh, Steyer has spiked in both the Nevada caucus and the South Carolina primary in recent days, which... Those uh, races follow one week after another after Iowa and New Hampshire next month, threatening what had been firewalls for Joe Biden in both Nevada and South Carolina previously. Well, that's politics and interesting politics at that, frankly, at least uh, were the stakes not so very dire this year to defeat the most dangerous menace to the nation and to the world that has arguably ever occupied the Oval Office. That, of course, would be Donald Trump if you're just joining us here on planet Earth. But there is one thing, according to Public Policy Polling, or PPP, a left-leaning polling organization based in the swingiest of swing states of North Carolina, 
one thing that will determine Donald Trump's fate this November, they say. And it is not necessarily who wins the Democratic nomination. It is something else entirely. And it is something that very well may have resulted in Donald Trump winning the White House in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. Over the last couple of weeks, PPP did polls testing the leading Democratic contenders for president against Donald Trump in both Arizona and Iowa. On the surface, they write, the numbers are decent, but not amazing for Democrats. Donald Trump won Arizona by four points back in 2016. Currently, he ties Joe Biden in the state. He leads Bernie Sanders by one. He leads Elizabeth Warren by two and Buttigieg by three in the state. Trump won Iowa by nine points in 2016. Well, currently he leads Buttigieg there by just one point. Joe Biden, uh, he leads by three and he beats Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren by five points, at least in the Hawkeye state, at least according to PPP's poll. But when you dig further into the numbers, a clearer picture emerges, they argue. Trump's position would be much, much worse in those states if voters who don't like him or even just those voters who voted against him in 2016 did one single thing. Joining us now is Jim Williams, the issue polling specialist at Public Policy Polling, to discuss that one single thing and if that one single thing is even possible. Jim Williams, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, okay, after that uh, tease, I'm still going to ask you one more question before we get to the answer. All you know, all of America, of course, is is waiting to hear what is that one thing that will defeat Donald Trump. But I often hear PPP described as a liberal polling firm or a Democratic pollster. And of course, I hear others described as Republican or conservative polling firms. What does that sort of labeling actually mean? Does it mean you skew your polls to uh, to Democrats? What does that actually mean? Sure. Uh, it doesn't mean that we skew our polls one way or the other. Um, <clears throat> in fact, analysts have found that our, our polls actually tend to, to favor conservatives when you compare them to the actual election outcomes sometimes. But what it means when people call a, a private polling company a Democratic or a Republican firm is it simply means they work for either Democratic or Republican clients, which is not unusual in politics with private firms. Mm -hmm. Most of them work for one side or the other for a couple big reasons. One is that clients like to know that the people that they're hiring you know, roughly share their values and mm -hmm. things like that. But another big reason is it helps cut down on conflicts of interest. It would be tough if you had, you know, people running in for Congress in a, in a general election trying to hire the same polling firm mm. and that kind of thing. So it's easier as a business to work for one side or the other, and that's all that means. We work for Democratic and progressive clients, but we don't. that doesn't mean that we give people happy numbers uh, mm -hmm. to make them look good or to make them happy. If we did that, it wouldn't take too long for those numbers to come up against reality and people would start to figure out we're putting out fluff numbers that don't you know mm -hmm. look good on election day and you wouldn't be able to stay in business too long doing it that way so when i see talking heads on fox news dismissing uh ppp poll numbers as oh that's a liberal firm that's really just fox news trying to avoid what it is that you guys have found rather than uh making the good point that you are somehow in the bag for democrats Right. I, I think I think it's an it's an easy way. If you want to dismiss a poll, 
if you have an interest in, in dismissing what a poll says, that's one way to try and do it. Gotcha. Okay. So Donald Trump is currently beating uh, each of the current front runners in, in potential battleground states like Arizona and Iowa. You find there is one thing uh, that would make his position, quote, much, much worse, at least in those two states, according to your polling. What is that one thing? The one thing that would make Trump's position much worse in these states is if voters who don't like Donald Trump, or even just those voters who voted against him in 2016, uh, end up unifying around the eventual Democratic nominee. If the party comes together after the primaries, that's really bad news for Trump. So in other words, uh, it's not so much a matter of who wins the nomination, it's a matter of Democrats agreeing to vote for him or her in November, period. Yeah, that's what we think. I mean, we found in Arizona, for example, that more than 80% of the undecided voters in every matchup between Trump and individual Democratic candidates who are running in the primary right now disapprove of Trump. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, uh, there, there's a, a real pocket of people in each one of these individual matchups that aren't sure. Maybe they're a Biden fan. And when you ask him, hey, what if it was Trump versus Bernie or Trump versus Warren, what would you think? They say, oh, I'm not sure because I really like Biden. Uh, if all those people would would just get on board against Trump, uh, mm-hmm. it, it really hurts Trump's position now, in the general election. Now that, of course, the uh, the, the numbers you're working from there were uh, Arizona and Iowa. They have not gone to Democrats for quite a while uh, in presidential elections. Do we have any similar numbers, or can those numbers be extrapolated out? But specifically, I'm looking at states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, mm-hmm. even Georgia, or your home state, Jim Williams, of North Carolina. Uh, any numbers sure. there that, that shore up that theory? I think we, well, this, these are the two polls that we did this week to kind of, mm-hmm. that we sort of found this kind of thought process that I think probably applies nationwide uh, to, to varying degrees. You know, and it wasn't that long ago that the Democrats who were winning Iowa on the presidential mm-hmm. level, I think Barack yeah. Obama won it twice. So mm-hmm. Arizona, of course, is pretty purple these days, too. So I think there are two states that are a decent, you know, test case for something like this. And I'll talk a little bit more about what happens when you take those voters who say they're undecided right now in certain individual matchups? If you allocate the undecided based on whether they approve of Trump or not, mm-hmm. uh, all the Democrats move into leads, ranging from four to six points. If you if you just allocate the undecided voters based on whether they voted for Clinton or Trump in 2016, mm-hmm. so in other words, you're saying, okay, well, this is what they did in 2016. Let's assume they did the same thing in 2020. Mm-hmm. Put aside any res- reservations they might have post-primary this time all the Democrats move into leads ranging from two to four points. Mm. So it really is something that could be uh, very determinative uh, in, in the outcome in November. Now, uh, when, when you say, uh, you know, if you attribute votes of people who uh, oppose Trump or, or see him uh, negatively, if, if, if you assume they're going to vote for the Democrat, that helps the Democrat to win. Is that a safe assumption to make? Because I read all the time about, uh, you know, Republicans who disapprove of Donald Trump, but they are going to vote for him anyway because they they, they like his policies, even if they hate him. Yeah, I think it's more that they, they would say they don't care for his style sometimes. Mm-hmm. But I think if you press them and say, do you think, do you approve or disapprove of the job he's doing as president? They mm-hmm. would still say they approve because they like the judges, because they like the tax cuts because mm. they like the toughness, that kind of thing. Gotcha. So do we have any sort of polling science to tell us whether 
<laughs> unity among Democrats, uh, you know, herding cats, that is the Democratic Party, uh, whether that is even possible. Stipulating, of course, that we have a very long way to go in this campaign. Anything could happen. We, frankly, have no idea who's going to end up being the nomination. We have no idea what Donald Trump is going to do uh, on a day-to-day -day basis or what he's going to do to whoever the candidate is. But do we have any sort of polling science to tell us whether it's even possible to unify this Democratic Party? It's hard to game out, isn't it? Because we don't know who the nominee is yet. We don't know who their running mate's going to be yet either. So maybe if uh, Biden ends up being the nominee, for example, mm -hmm. what if he if he picked an, uh, somebody maybe that's perceived to be the left of him, like Elizabeth Warren or some or someone that that crowd could get excited about. Maybe that would help to unify the party a little bit. Or conversely, if Bernie becomes the nominee and a lot of you know moderate Democrats might get spooked, maybe he runs with Pete Buttigieg and and you know brings in some people that way. Mm -hmm. There's so many factors that have yet to play out that it's, it's really hard to, to conclusively say what would happen, but you know, those are two things that might might help to bring the party together. The the Monmouth poll that I referenced in the opening uh, also asked, uh, by the way, I, I guess they're sort of competitors of yours, but do you consider the Monmouth poll to be a, a good poll? Sure. I didn't look at it closely, but, you know, they're, they're, um, they're affiliated with the university, so they're mm -hmm. not, you know, competitors with us as such in right. terms of... Uh, private business but yeah I, I think i think that poll those polls are, are pretty widely accepted yeah yeah uh well they also asked democratic voters in in that poll uh, who their preference would be if only the current top four candidates were in the race that would be uh, biden Buttigieg, sanders and warren i guess this was before uh tom steyer's recent spike in several states but they say uh in this instance uh, if everyone had to choose only among those uh, top four uh, tier candidates, Biden would be in the top spot at 24 percent, Buttigieg at 23 percent, Sanders at 21 and Warren at 18. But here's the part that concerns me. Five percent of Democrats said they would not support any of the top four candidates. And about half of those who would abstain from voting currently support Tulsi Gabbard at the moment. So uh, so that's five percent of Democrats, uh, which I guess translates to roughly two and a half percent of the national vote. So I guess uh, two questions here. Is that enough to make a difference if those Democrats stay home or, or worse, vote for Donald Trump? And B, uh, uh, does PPP have any polling on what's up with Gabbard and their supporters? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't taken a deep dive into the world of Tulsi Gabbard supporters, but I'd be as curious as anybody else to find out what's going on in their heads. Right. Um, the 2.5% that you mentioned, that, that 5% of people that said, hey, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't vote at all if it was, it was one of those top four. I mean, I'm going to put that down to we're in the heat of the primary right now. A lot of people are stuck on their individual candidates. Andrew Yang, for example, has a dedicated following. Mm -hmm. Lots of Tulsi has a dedicated following. Even somebody like Cory Booker in certain places has his fans. Uh, Stiers making mm -hmm. noise again. Um, so a lot of people, you know, this is the time of the cycle when people are excited about their individual candidate. They don't want to think about, oh, you know, what if it was so and so? You know that the, you know that uh, they would say, ah, I don't know what I do. But when it comes down to it, most people end up coming home to their party, right? I mean, we saw that in 2016 when. Trump was on his way to becoming a Republican nominee, and mm -hmm. everybody was waiting to see, well, gosh, you know, what are all these moderate Republicans going to do? Are they going to vote for third party? Are they going to stay home? Are they going to vote for Hillary? 
And I think what ended up happening in 2016, more than anybody expected, was that they held their nose and they voted party. Mm -hmm. And if Democrats do the same, that would be very good for Democrats. Well, they did the same last time, held their nose, voted for party, I guess, but it wasn't enough. Have there been enough uh, changes among the, uh, I guess, the the undecideds or the independents? Have there been enough change uh, among those people that if... Uh, those people came together with Democrats that it would be enough to uh, to take down it, Trump? It could be, and I think one one clue that shows that it might is what happened in the U.S. House elections last year, or mm-hmm. in, sorry, in fall 2018, when, yep. when the suburbs of America really became the battleground for the House, and you saw Donald Trump not, you know, the Republican Party, which is basically the same thing as Donald Trump now, it did not perform as well in 2018 as it did in 2016. So I think if you overlay what happened in 2018 on top of 2020, that would be very bad for Trump. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, there has been movement, um, particularly in the suburbs, among moderates and things like that. Um, will it hold uh, in a presidential, you know, turnout year? It might, but it's going to depend on, on who can get more of their base out, right? So. It'll depend on how good of a job Trump does in getting his base out. And, of course, it'll depend on how good of a job the Democratic nominee is able to, to get everybody in line on their side. Does your research at this point at PPP, Jim Williams, uh, point to any, uh, any aspects of what p- actual policies would most unify Democrats? Or is it really just reliant on who the nominee is ultimately and uh, how much the, that everybody uh, dislikes Donald Trump? dual dislike of Donald Trump is a huge factor, but I think all Democrats can agree that we need to move towards uh, uh, everybody being covered with health care. All Democrats agree that we need to aggressively uh, move to to try and do something about climate change. I think all Democrats agree that we have to do something to try and stop mass shootings. Things like that are, and, and by the way, that those things aren't, aren't things that only Democrats agree on. Those are things that test in the 70 and 80 percent range mm-hmm. nationally. So, you know, I think any nominee that Democrats have is going to focus on, on those things broadly and be able to satisfy the vast majority of the Democratic base. I discussed uh, at the top of the show uh, the new report that the uh, DOJ's investigation of Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation, uh, that big witch hunt uh, hoax in, into the Clinton Foundation, came up with a big nothing and and on her emails, and then it was all, you know, that was all the basis of the phony lock-her-up chants in 2016. Uh-huh. Uh, but that concerned a lot of Democrats in 2016 uh, that, you know, were she elected, she might be facing criminal indictment or impeachment. Yes, it was all phony. We uh, some of us knew that at the time. Hopefully everyone knows it now. Um, but Trump is using that same playbook right now on on Joe Biden. It's at the root of the, the Trump impeachment. Are, are are Democrats dumb enough to fall for that same phony hoax again in 2020, whether it's, you know, uh, Biden is dirty or Sanders is a communist or take your pick of whatever, you know, phony BS that Republicans will absolutely be putting forward to try and destroy whoever is the nominee by scaring off uh, p- uh, potential Democratic voters? Can we uh, will we fall for that one again, Jim? Sure. You know, I'm not sure how much of a damper that stuff actually had on Democratic turnout in 2016. I think if you were inclined to not like Hillary, that was something that you could latch onto. And I think another huge advantage of why Trump does things like that is it distracts from whatever bad things he's doing. You know, he'll do the what about this? What about that? What about Benghazi? Mm-hmm. 
cetera, et cetera. So he, he, he'll just turn it around. And he's trying to do that with Biden now. And I'm sure if Biden's the nominee, he'll, he'll try it some more. Um, I think there's a few differences with the Biden scandal and the Hillary scandal, um, or attempting to make Benghazi a Hillary scandal. First of all, no one's died because Hunter Biden was, you know, on the board uh, of a Ukrainian company. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing is it's, you know, it's a family attack. It's an attack on his family. And I, I don't know how well that, that's going to play. You know, Biden is a fairly likable guy. Everybody knows his his family history, and there's a lot of tragedy there. So I think Trump is, I understand why he's going to try to run that playbook again. I think it's a lot more risky this time. I uh, I know you you guys are just sort of looking at raw numbers here when you come up with this uh, theory that basically if Democrats come together if they unify that uh, that would be very very bad news for Donald Trump but I worry uh, that in this sort of post uh, Karl Rove age where you know you don't just run against your uh, opponents and highlight the differences in your campaign you now you have to destroy your opponent and you, all of their supporters and et cetera. I worry, you know, that as we saw in 2016, um, it, it might be difficult to unify the Democratic Party. I know that, you know, many still blame Bernie Sanders for not doing enough for Hillary Clinton in the general in 2016. But I recall him doing a whole bunch for her. It seemed like it was sort of based on uh, well, whatever was left over of the primary battle uh, is is, uh, you know, I worry that we'll see that again. Is it even possible to unify the Democratic Party? Is there a way to do that? And I mentioned that Elizabeth Warren is working on a strategy to try and do that. But is it even possible, Jim? I think everybody needs to try. I think that's the most important thing. Whoever that person is, they have to do everything that they can to try and unify the party, to make everybody feel heard, to make everybody feel like their their voice is is involved in what's Mm -hmm. going on. No one feel like... They're being marginalized because they didn't win the primary. As much spade work can be done on that on that level, the better off Democrats will be. Last question for you, Jim. Uh, that uh, my producer Desi Doyen slides me here because we uh, we don't we don't cover a lot of polling. We tend to cover the uh, the track conditions rather than the horse race itself. Uh, but we do look at polling from time to time. And uh, her question is uh, about cell phone polling. Are polls now skewed one way or another because so many people only have cell phones, or is that pretty much taken into account? now by uh, pollsters in one way or another yeah I mean, the polling industry is a little bit in flux right now it used to be that you could you know 10 or 20 years ago you were fine and in a lot of places just calling people on their landlines at home and they'd answer and you could get your data and wait it and you'd go from there and that still works in certain places you know in, in rural areas or maybe places where the demographics are pretty stable or there's not a lot of people moving in and out of a place but what we're seeing more and more and what a lot of pollsters are doing is doing multiple modes of reaching out to people. You might you might do household landlines combined with uh, Internet panels mm-hmm. of people taking surveys online, or you combine it with live calls to people's cell phones, or even texting to people's cell phones is something that more and more pollsters are doing. So as, as the ways that people like to be get gotten in contact with changes, uh, pollsters are trying to keep up with that, and it helps them get data that shows them a fuller picture. Jim Williams is the issue polling specialist at public policy polling, uh, saying that, uh, hey, if Democrats want to win this year, 
All they got to do is come together. Thank you, Jim. Really appreciate you joining us today. And I uh, hope you don't mind if we stay in touch with you uh, as, as this uh, mess unfolds over the next few months. That sounds great, Brad. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jim. So, uh, Desi Doyen, just to underscore this, the very yeah. end of uh, their, their poll here, they note uh, Donald Trump is stuck at 46 to 47 percent in Arizona. That's it. Uh, he has a uh, he's underwater. His approval rating is underwater by about four points. OK, uh, he's stuck at 48 to 49 percent in Iowa. Again, not a majority. Uh, and his approval rating not underwater. It's actually even 48, 48. He appears to have very little room to grow among undecideds. They find these numbers suggest that the fate of the 2020 election really stands in the hands of voters who do not like Trump. Trump does not have enough people who like him to get reelected. The only way he does is if the voters who do not like him refuse to get on the same page after the Democratic primary is over. They say right now we see a lot of people saying they will vote for Biden, but not for Bernie or will vote for Bernie, but not Biden. If those people get on the same page once the nominee is chosen, Trump will lose. If they don't, well, they say it will be close. Wow. And that's kind of scary to me because, as you've said, he is a national emergency. Yep. He is the asteroid that is heading for the Earth that's going to make climate change as bad as possible. So if you're somebody who believes that we should act on climate change, if you would actually consider not voting, then I, uh -huh. I don't I would question your sense of values and your sense of how important you think this race actually is. You know, uh, the point he makes here that this is not about any one candidate, at least after the uh, the primary is over. This is about unifying to remove that national emergency once and for all. Yes. Well, we'll have a lot of uh, a lot of months to talk about it. But uh, now that we're getting right up to the voting in a couple of weeks, I thought it might be a nice idea to start talking about this. Yeah. And especially because I don't think uh, supporters of various candidates need to beat up the other candidates and their supporters in order to win. <laughs> yeah. Just saying. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That service is made possible by those of you fantastic listeners who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Because, yes, we are 100% listener supported. Thank you. Bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like to tell me how wrong I am about everything. <laughs> I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I hope you'll find, follow, and harass me there, where I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there until we see you here next time. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>